I'm always at the door, palms out, showing them, hey, can I come in? Right at the beginning, they will cuss at you. They're angry. This is a caged animal, unfortunately, to, to put it in those terms. They're cornered. They're uncomfortable. They're cold. They're out of control. I've never met anybody who doesn't like to be in control of any situation. I I try to bring a sense of um, level playing field. I'm not better than you. You're not better than me. I try to come in eye level. I try to come with a, a vibe of where they're at. If they're angry, I bring the volume down to where they almost have to bring that volume down as well. It never fails. You offer somebody who's intoxicated a burger with a side of bacon, bro, bro. That is emergency department nurse, Jose Pacheco. Where Jose works, he is the go-to guy that gets called when a 400-pound intoxicated bodybuilder looks like they are about to blow their top. And Jose is referred to by an almost mythical nickname because of his ability to de-escalate and defuse. He's called the Drunk Whisperer. Jose's a unique guy, there's no question. And you might think that what he does is this one in a million genetic ability, but it's not. It's teachable and it's learnable. It's a skill known as verbal judo. Welcome, my friends, to Stimulus Episode 1. My name is Rob Orman, and I am joined today to discuss verbal judo with my good friend, physician, and philosopher from Augusta, Georgia, Dr. Dan McCullum. Rob, so excited to kick this off. I totally made up the philosopher part just because I think, oh, yeah, he's a philosophical guy, but now, like, you are officially a philosopher. (laughs) I got the honorary degree and everything. Honorary degree, baby. I'm totally putting that in my fridge. Honorary degree. Well, we just heard a few tidbits from the Drunk Whisperer. How would you like it if that were your nickname? Would that? I mean, I would put that on the back of my scrubs in giant letters, like one of those big (laughs) back tattoos. If if I if I had that as my nickname, definitely some business cards. Like, yeah, no, no, I'm I'm the Drunk Whisperer. Here you go. (laughs) That was Jose Pacheco, and he is a verbal judo natural black belt. And we'll actually hear more from Jose later in the episode with a full eight-minute interview that those little excerpts came from. And he's going to give his breakdown on how he manages intoxicated, belligerent patients with body language and voice and eye contact. But before that, Dan and I are going to dissect some of the high points of the verbal judo technique. And I would love it if verbal judo was a term that Dan and I made up, but it's actually the title of a book and an entire course from George Thompson. He was a former police officer, and he describes verbal judo as this, staying calm in the midst of conflict, deflecting verbal abuse, and offering empathy in the face of antagonism. Now, Dan and I are both physicians. Jose is a nurse, so our perspectives come from interactions that happen in the medical setting, but the principles we're going to discuss can really be used in any venue where there's conflict or escalation. And I'll say that years before I ever heard the term verbal judo, 
I learned my first structured verbal de-escalation technique for managing agitated patients. Get ready for this, Dr. McCollum. I learned it from you. I don't think I ever... Oh, no. Yeah, I never told you that. But I guess, you know, for going with the whole judo motif, you were my first sensei in this stuff. And we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. But before I heard your approach on how you de-escalate, I frankly had usually lost the battle in these situations by going all in with my position of authority, playing the upper hand immediately. And the attitude was, I'm not going to tolerate this. And there's two ways that this is going to go. It's either going to go my way or it's going to go my way. I probably did say that as sometime I was such a jerk, <laughs> but that was kind of the general approach, right? I'm not taking any BS. I don't have time for this. I don't have time for you and your nonsense. You are putting my staff and other patients in danger. I would kind of stress this attitude of, I will not tolerate this. Very much the stern parent to the misbehaving child. What would you guess was my my return on investment for that approach? Uh, Might have been a little mixed. Some people responded to it, I think, because, you know, they were just passive and I think certain personalities that just works with, but most it didn't, especially when people were agitated. And then I heard you give a talk on your de-escalation sequence. And this was a total life changer, a total practice changer. This was almost before McCollum and after McCollum. Like, wait a second, BM? (laughs) This was before McCollum. But I tried your technique the next day and it worked and has been my go-to since hundreds and hundreds of times. Well, thanks, Rob. I had no idea of that before this conversation. It it really struck me um, and it honestly started back in residency where I'd see different attendings that modeled different ways of approaching agitated folks. And there there seemed to be folks that either had like this go, no go, false dichotomy of either we're wrestling with them and putting IM drugs in or we're doing absolutely nothing with them. It really just kind of came from the idea of sort of a graduated response to, to whatever the situation was. The graduated responsibility would come from the military systems of DEFCON, so your readiness factor, depending on how aggressive the situation is, going um, from DEFCON 5 all the way down to nuclear um, option, which is DEFCON 1. And so the idea of bringing that to bear with agitated patients makes a lot of sense, that the military is always ready, even when things are completely peaceful, but sometimes you have to, to escalate things a little bit more. DEFCON 5 through 1. Like 5 is, I'm pretty easygoing. And DEFCON 1 is the full physical takedown. All of the security guards are in there. Restraints, ketamine. If things don't go well, possibly even rapid sequence intubation, right? So that's exactly all right. So (laughs) that's not a mystery, right? That's not what we're talking about here. If we get to that point, I wouldn't say that we've lost, but all other options have been exhausted. So walk me through the steps and exactly what you would say and what your actions would be. So DEFCON 5, which is just kind of easygoing. I'm at a state of readiness, but I'm chill, you're chill. It's just being nice, acknowledging that no agitated patient chose this as plan A. It's, it's really all about having that empathy, preserving the relationship and just checking in, making sure things are okay. And any sort of minor bribery, like we, we've had the conversation of the number of milligrams of lorazepam equivalent to a turkey sandwich, it's probably <laughs> pretty good. You know, just, just being nice and knowing when you can bend while still keeping things safe. And then as you go down towards DEFCON 4, you're really looking at a lot more of the active verbal judo type activities, being a lot more clear that yes, if, if you continue that behavior, things will get worse. How is it that we can work together to avoid that situation? Because neither of us want that. DEFCON 3 would often be 
taking the edge off, honestly, with uh, a lot of oral medications is usually what I like to go here. So we're not wrestling with people and, and using needles. So I, I like to use a lot of oral lorazepam or Ativan to sort of take the edge off. And a specific phrase I really like to use is, you seem a bit anxious. Would you like something to help calm you down? And a lot of folks are actively looking for this. They want to be a little bit more chill because they recognize that they're agitated and upset. Let me pause you with how that has turned out in the real world from one of your students, me. (laughs) Okay. So the first part, just being nice in a relationship, that is a huge change of frame because you think, you know, you've got these 10 security guards behind you or sometimes more. Everyone is amped up, but you need to be amped down and you're just kind and you're nice. And that goes a long way. And that goes a lot with what Jose was talking about, about lowering the voice and whatnot. I love that. Yes. And then the thing like, hey, could I get you a blanket or a sandwich? Right. So, okay. So DEFCON 4. And then that last one that you just said, that was also practice changing for me, that phrasing. Hey, you look stressed. Is there something I could get you to help you relax if the first two don't work? Or maybe even conjunction, right? Like sometimes these things are in parallel. And The first time I did that, I figured that the patient would fly off the handle because that had been my experience with my previous approach, which was very much, I am the authority here and you are misbehaving versus, hey, this is someone in distress that really needs help. Hey, you look stressed. Can I get you something to help you relax? Yes. Yes. (laughs) Please. Yes, please. Why do you think I'm here? And then a sandwich, or as they said, a burger with bacon, bro. Oh, yeah. Yeah, a little bit of a benzodiazepine <laughs> or an antipsychotic. It's just, you know, if somebody is not in their right mind, they're still thirsty. They're still seeking that relief from distress. And they often recognize that long before you did. You, you've known them for a couple of minutes. They probably have known that things were going poorly for weeks. And so because of that, the folks that will voluntarily take that, that's really the the key part of this is that you're extending an offer and saying, hey, this is the thing that I can offer to you to help out. And I'll say that Jose's de-escalation usually stops here, which is people take things PO and they chill out just by him using the verbal judo techniques or really his drunk whisper techniques, which is verbal judo, and rarely gets to DEFCON 2, which would be haloperidol, Benadryl, Ativan, you know, just to put them in isolation and chill them out, let them cool off. It's usually that they can work themselves out of it. Although there is that 10% that we know that are so agitated that they will kick through the wall and they are, you know, like someone on PCP or someone whose mental illness is just so intense and manic, none of this stuff's going to work. And that's where the the safety that, that Jose clearly prioritizes a lot is key. It's really hard to predict when things will escalate and you always need to be ready to escalate. But the vast majority of the time, you should be more in that readiness state, DEFCON 5 through 3 type territory. And and that's where I I rarely have to restrain patients that are agitated if you really focus and and give it your all on those attempts. But knowing in the back of your mind that if we have to go all the way to DEFCON 1, where we're using physical restraints, ketamine, and very rarely even having to intubate patients for their safety. Um, That happens particularly with some trauma patients that are agitated And there's just not another way to make sure they're not having a brain bleed or something like that from their car crash. And I think that your de-escalation totally fits with this philosophy, staying calm in the midst of conflict, deflecting verbal abuse, and offering empathy in the face of antagonism. And the phrasing of, hey, you look stressed. Can I get you something to help you relax? When I heard you say that and just how you phrased it the first time, and even just this time, 
I said, oh, that is a different way to model my behavior on managing distressed patients with that calm demeanor because I, I found myself pretty agitated myself. It really is amazing how as long as you have that empathy, it becomes more of a, a mirror of sort of seeing that, yes, I can put myself in your shoes as opposed to this antagonistic wrestling match that honestly uh, was my previous approach before really reflecting on what we were doing. And to that point, verbal judo, there's a lot of specific techniques. And frankly, it's hard to remember them. You know, it's like, oh, here's the five steps to do this, the six steps to do this, the eight <laughs> steps to do that, and this mnemonic for that. It's hard to remember. And actually, the author says, you know, it'd probably be hard for me to remember all, all of these things. But in one of the final chapters of the book, after George Thompson, the author, describes all of these, you know, very exacting steps on how to diffuse or cajole. He gives this single unifying principle, and it's so skillfully phrased, and it's this. Empathy absorbs tension. If you walk into a conflict and try to bludgeon the person by force of will or by being more belligerent than they are, it's possible you'll win the small battle like right there in those few minutes, but you've already lost the war. You've lost Empathy absorbs tension. And it reminds me of an Aikido teacher I knew when I was a kid who wrote a book called The Harmony of Conflict. He was the dad of one of my friends when I was in school. And I was like, whoa, what does that mean? It's a sound, obviously it sounds like an oxymoron, but he said, if you meet the conflict head on, nobody's coming out without some wounds. If you can absorb it with empathy, the outcome is much more likely to be positive. And there's part of this where, you know, you're dealing with people who are kind of unreasonable, or at least you think. And if you have the thought that, you know what, this person is a jerk and I don't want to have empathy for them. How can I muster that up? Well, I totally get that. And I would say that in that situation, or if that is your mental frame, consider that you are gaming the system or that you are using empathy as a strategic tool for conflict de-escalation. It is that powerful. That mentioning of empathy absorbs tension is worth the price of the book alone. I mean, it's worth the price of admission right there. And it reminded me of the, the phrase, they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care, which sounds really hokey. But if you approach everything from an empathetic stance, things just go so much more smoothly. And I really don't think this can be faked. Um, I think you truly have to embody someone that wants the best for their patient. It can't be faked, but I think it can be hard to invoke. You know, like if you, when you're dealing with someone who's really difficult, your, or at least my natural response is just repulsion. Mm -hmm. I want nothing to do with you. I don't want to be around you. But when you're in a professional situation, you really don't have a choice. And so it's recognizing that and taking a pause and thinking, all right, let me see this from their perspective. How are they viewing this situation right now? That difficulty of invoking it reminds me a lot of meditation. Getting peace and tranquility or a clear mind is a very challenging thing to invoke, but it's a, a practicable skill. Like it's something that you can learn by doing. And so as you, as you get better and better at generating this empathy, it, even though it can't be faked, it is something that you can snap into in the same way that an experienced meditator can sort of snap into having a clearer head. Oh, absolutely. So I think about someone who's in medical practice in any way. I think about a police officer. I think about somebody who's selling jeans at the gap and they're dealing with somebody who is totally unreasonable and irrational. 
and you're thinking, I just, I, I want this person to be gone. But the really skillful resolution to that is to recognize that repulsion. The, the more you feel that and you can't get out of the situation, just walk away. The more you feel that repulsion, that can be an effective trigger to say, okay, I'm feeling this. This is the time when I need to be empathetic with this person and say, all right, where are they coming from? And having that empathy, I guess it absorbs the tension. Yeah, exactly. It, it really is a useful phrase. Let me ask you this. Have you ever been pulled over by the police? I sure have. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we, we won't get into specific details. All right. Has the police officer ever walked up to your door and said, license and registration and left it at that? Or you know why I pulled you over? Oh, definitely the, the latter. And how did you feel? I was upset. I was like, no, nah, I just driving along, minding my own business. I, I surely wasn't speeding or you couldn't have caught me speeding, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that that's a really common first approach, not only in police work, but in a lot of lines of work. I mean, first off, license and registration immediately sets up an antagonistic relationship. And that's what these things are. I mean, they're very brief relationships. It's actually really uh, an amazing part of our job is if you're a primary care doctor and you're just not naturally warm and fuzzy, you can win over that patient that you've had for 5, 10, 20 years over time when they realize, oh, yeah, Dr. McCollum, he's a bit gruff, but man, he he's a really solid guy. And so I'm going to keep coming back. The vast, vast majority of our patients are brand new to us and we don't know them at all. And so establishing that really quick relationship with a total stranger is really a lot more challenging. Most professions that you don't have long-term relationships with people. Maybe they'll be, they might be a couple hours. They might be a couple minutes, maybe, maybe days, but you have to have that immediate rapport. And, and this other thing, you know, if the officer says, Hey, do you know why I pulled you over? Now, most of the time, even if you know, you're probably not going to tell the truth <laughs> or it, even if, uh, I mean, sometimes you do, but maybe not the entire truth. Cause you think, okay, am I admitting guilt or whatever? So that also sets up an adversarial relationship because you're thinking, well, now I got to lie to this guy and now we're going to be antagonistic, at least on some level. But what about this? And this is part of the verbal judo traffic stop. There's, I mean, because this was developed for police, they say, okay, here's how you do a tra traffic stop. So I just pulled you over and I'm walking up to your car and I say, good morning, sir. I'm Officer Orman with the Bend Police Department. And the reason I stopped you today is that I saw you run a stop sign two blocks ago. Is there any justified reason for that? Now, maybe your answer is yes. My wife is in the backseat. She's in labor. We're, we're having a baby. <laughs> now, at that point, the conversation's over and you get a police escort to the hospital, but usually it's a no or something not justified. And then at that point, I say, may I see your license and registration, please? Which is a necessary part of this interaction, but it's not, hey, give me this thing. And there's this clear demarcation of authority and you're at the bottom of this. When I came up to your car with that, did you feel any differently with that approach? Obviously this is, you know, like a total simulation. Yeah, absolutely. It, it identified clearly who you were and that it showed right away that you were open and flexible to what the situation is, that you were reasonable and actually trying to figure out where I'm coming from. So number one, I'm presenting a professional image. Say, hi, I'm Officer Orman, or I'm Dr. Orman. You are treated with respect. There's no hostility or judgment, and I am completely courteous. But what this also does is it defines the parameters of the conversation. I'm telling you exactly why this is happening. 
that is out on the street on a traffic stop. How how would you see this strategy, this traffic stop strategy playing out in the hospital? Every time I go into a patient room, I'll identify myself as Dr. McCollum. So, hi, I'm Dr. McCollum. How can I help you today? And that has been kind of my running script for a long time. You sort of have to tailor it to your particular personality. I've experimented with just calling myself Dan McCollum, but they often would get kind of confused of, are you a resident? Are you the attending? Do your patients actually know what attending is? <laughs> it's, it gets very messy in a hurry with that, but it, it shows that you're flexible with it. How can I help you today? That's kind of the neutral interaction, but we started the show talking about people who are belligerent and intoxicated and potentially violent with mental illness. And I want to get back to this idea of people who are not totally stoked to be in your arena. And this is the upset patient. Mm. This is not in the verbal judo book, but I think it completely aligns with the philosophy of staying calm in the midst of conflict, deflecting verbal abuse and offering empathy in the face of antagonism. And with the upset patient coming in professional, courteous, empathetic, it's a good start. But by the time you get in there, they've got a big head of steam brewing. Like they've, they've had time to really let this stew. And in these situations, I've many times used something that's called the universal upset patient protocols developed by Dyke Drummond at the Happy MD. And this is six steps. Uh, you know, I hate, hate when things are it's like, okay, here's the specific, can I remember these things? <laughs> well, this is actually good to remember these. And I would say that this works 90% of the time to de-escalate. And then 10% of the time, it seems like there, there's really nothing that you can do. People are just going to be mad. They want to stay mad. And it might just be their personality to be dissatisfied, or they're just so irritated that you cannot diffuse a situation. But it has paid dividends on dividends, like compounding interest to use this technique. And as I say that, I think, well, there must be a lot of upset patients under my care, <laughs> but it's just, it's just the nature of any medical practice, especially emergency medical practice that people going to be upset. And sometimes it's of things that are in your control, sometimes outside of your control, but boy, when you add those things together, it happens at least every day. Uh, and Rob, I'll go ahead and say that if you believe that you don't have any upset patients and you work in the emergency department, uh, you've got a serious denial problem. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the universal upset patient protocol, there are six steps of this, and it's it's a little bit like the DEFCON thing, but it walks the person through acknowledging their hostility and then hopefully to resolution. So here we go. So the six steps. Before I walk into the room, I steal myself. And it's not that like, okay, here we go for battle, but I take a couple deep breaths and maybe I'll hold these breaths or exhale slowly just to become a little bit more parasympathetic so that I'm not in an escalated state as they are. I need to be calm. I need to be like Jose. So step one, walk in the room and say, you seem really upset or you look really upset. And usually I've been told by the nurse, like, hey, this patient is really pissed. So I kind of know it's a fixed game. Let's just be clear on that. So that validates that they're upset. And that goes a long way, validating what's going on with them rather than saying like, you have no right to be upset. That's step one. You look real upset. Step two. Hey, tell me about it. Tell me what's going on. Now, this gives them permission 
to vent. And at this point, our job is to listen, to just actively take in what they're saying, process what they're saying, not just, all right, I'm going to give them one minute. And after that, I'll stop thinking about what I'm going to do after work and I'll get back to listening to them. No, you're actively listening, kind of problem solving in your mind. And you're just listening, not interrupting. And sometimes it ends at step two because people just want to be heard, but often goes to step three. Hey, I'm so sorry this is happening to you. And regardless of what's happening, even if you think that their emotional upset is absolutely ridiculous, take any ego out of it. Any ego like, wow, I'm appalled that they think that of me and the care they're receiving here. Take any ego out and just see it from their perspective. Empathy absorbs tension. So step three, I'm so sorry this is happening to you. Step four, here's where it turns. So you've validated, you've let them vent, you've shown that you're empathizing. Step four, what would you like me to do to help you out? What would you like me to do to help resolve this? Now, oftentimes the person just wanted to be heard, but maybe there actually is something that you can do to help them that you've been missing. There might also be a request that is totally unreasonable. But at this point, you have placed the power of decision-making with them and it completes the path of validation. Step five is you offering a plan. Hey, here's what I'd like us to do next. And this puts into action a plan that you think, or I think, might help resolve what's going on. And at this point, they might ask for something completely unreasonable, at least in my mind. And rather than rejecting it outright, present an alternate plan with something like, well, here's what I'd suggest, or here's the plan I'd recommend. And this is a topic for a completely different day, but a common situation would be someone asks for opiates when it's inappropriate for whatever reason. And rather saying, ain't going to happen, my friend, that's direct force versus force conflict. But empathy absorbs the tension, say, hey, I understand that you're in pain and I don't want you to be in pain, but I don't think that oxycodone is the answer or really safe for that matter. Here's what I'd like to do instead. They can accept that or not. And then step six is closing the deal. And this sounds really corny. And I felt like a total dong when I said this the first time, (laughs) but thank you so much for sharing this with me. I'm glad you didn't keep this inside because that wouldn't have worked out well for either of us. And it's important that we understand each other completely. Steps one through six, once you get there, 90% of the time, diffused, happy. And sometimes you are getting something that you missed that could have even led to a catastrophic outcome in the end. I love that, Rob. It really just formalizes a lot of the same stuff that we're talking about. And I I really do love the Rob Borman step zero of preparing yourself before you go in the room. You know, I I think that, you know, taking a slow breath, you know, putting on your your best step forward. And if it's not the right moment for you, right? Like you just had a a code that went poorly and this is the first patient that you're seeing after, after pronouncing someone dead, maybe this isn't the room for you to step into. Maybe you need to go grab a cup of water. Maybe you need to, to take a stroll around the department for 30 seconds. If you're not ready for it, you know, you shouldn't do it. You would never try to force yourself to, to put in a central line if you weren't in the right mind space for it. So why on earth would you treat this differently than what the procedure is, that it is? That's a great point. And I'm going to say something that might sound really weird, but one thing that I have used before I've gone there, I've, I've used 
sometimes breathing techniques, sometimes visual field techniques that we're going to talk about in a future episode. But I will stand outside the room for a moment and I will think, where are my feet? Hmm. Yeah, that sounds totally weird, doesn't it? Right. Okay. Where are my feet? Wait, this is how you're preparing to go in and talk to this person. And I learned that from the book Attending, I think what's by Ronald Epstein, I think. Where are my feet? And I think, all right, my feet are below me. What do they feel like? What do my feet feel like in my shoes? What are, and, and essentially, it just gives you an object to focus on and bring you back to the present moment because you're thinking, oh, what's going to happen in here? What's it? You know, you're kind of already 10 steps ahead and obviously you have to be organized, but where are my feet? It just brings me back to the present moment, brings my mind back to a calm, single point focused state that, you know, just a, a couple seconds of that, I don't know, maybe 10 seconds. Sorry, right, where are my feet? I, I have found is a great grounding technique to take me out of the tumult in my mind, like, oh, I just did this code and I have to go see this upset patient. Hey, just come back and this is going to be okay. I mean, it's, it's so true. We, we spend way too much time on autopilot, just sort of drifting from room to room as opposed to that sort of intentional, hey, what, what's going on? Where am I? What, what's happening here? And I also love that the, uh, in, in step five, it, it's very intentional about how they are emphasizing alternative plan. So if, if their solution is a completely unnecessary head CT or antibiotics for viral URI or another refill of oxycodone that really isn't a good idea for the patient, um, it's so important to open up another door. I frequently will have residents present plans to me and their plan for a viral upper respiratory infection is not antibiotic. Well, that's not really a plan. That's the absence <laughs> of a plan. So instead of that, say, no, I, I really don't think a ZPAC is going to help you today. However, I'm going chips in on addressing your symptoms. You know, here's the antipyretics, here's the decongestant. Like we're throwing the kitchen sink at the stuff that actually works as opposed to giving you these other side effects. With that universal upset patient protocol, we went through these six specific steps. And this method stresses, or is just an example of the importance of organization. And if you are entering a confrontation and think, yeah, I'm pretty good at this. I got the gift of gab. I can just wing it like I always do. You know what? You might be right. You might actually just be super charming and be able to diffuse things. But if you have in your mind how you want this to unfold from beginning to middle to end, have it mapped out from start to finish, your chance of success, I think, is way higher. A lot of the conversations that just go off the rails is really because there wasn't a plan about where this was going to go when it started. You just sort of tried to wing it. And there's certainly an element of there's some jazz to this where, where sometimes you might skip step four entirely because that's the conversation's already in step five. Okay, that, that's fine. But as long as you have that plan, um, it's entirely appropriate. If you talk to airway masters, they don't just say, yeah, I'm really good at laryngoscopy. I'm just going to go in there and just see what happens. No, they, they never do that. They visualize their plan. They discuss with their team. First, we're going to start with DL. If that doesn't work, we're going to get out the video scope. Then I'm going to use a bougie. Then I'm going to put in the LMA. They, they have every step of the way ready. And if we're really viewing this difficult conversation as a procedure, why is it that we we're treating it differently where we would show up wow. and say, I'm going to wing it. That blows my mind. Treating a difficult conversation as a procedure. You're hopefully not going to miss anything with your incredible plan. 
Exactly. And, and sometimes the, the plan isn't needed, you know, with B, C, D, and E that the patient says, yeah, I was a little bit upset, but I, I'm over it. I just want to talk about my, my back pain or whatever. And like, okay, cool. Like, you know, crisis aborted. We, we didn't need to go through all those things. In the same way that if you're intubating someone, sometimes DL works and just everything's fine. But it's really important to have a plan about what's going to happen if it doesn't go well. All right. Well, here's a little bit of a difference. Have you ever walked out of a central line or a chest tube and thought, oh, I can't believe that central line, the audacity. Oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I've met a few jugular veins that I was like, how dare you get so close to the carotid? Oh, I am really upset with you. <laughs> yeah. But when we're dealing with human beings, it's super easy for us to get angry in these confrontations, but how we respond here says just as much about us as it does the other person. And I think right below, or maybe along with empathy absorbs tension, there's another verbal judo principle that if you forget all of the micro steps, here is the bold face. We treat people as ladies and gentlemen, not because they are, but because we are. Now, that's not a specific strategy. It's more of something to internalize in these situations. It sounds like it goes a little bit against the empathy, like, oh, well, they're not a ladies and gentlemen. Well, yes, they are. But the reason that you are responding this way is because you are. This is coming from you. Now, you will feel the animalistic response of anger or defensiveness or fear and want to lash out. I mean, that's natural when you are being attacked. But take a pause. Take a breath and remember that you probably don't have a choice about that initial response, that initial just, but then you do have a choice in how you respond to that emotion that wells up. And I guess this is the moment of the podcast where we have our mandatory mention of the Stoic philosophers. <laughs> I don't think that we could chat about craft beer for five minutes without mentioning Stoicism. So it's kind of amazing we got this far along without bringing them up. But this really comes down to the Stoic idea of the dichotomy of control. And, and what do I mean by that? So there are things that are up to us and there are things that aren't up to us. And if you really boil it down to the simplest nugget of what is truly up to you. It is your thoughts and how you respond to the situation. I can't control how this person is going to respond to what I say. They might get more upset. They might storm out of the room. They might try to swing at me. However, I can respond to my internal judgments and how I carry myself the way that I am thinking. That's what's up to me. And that that's really is what the dichotomy of control is all about. A common theme so far is that one of the traps in a conflict is that we only see it playing out from our eyes, especially you know when you're really in the heat of the moment. From our vantage point, we can't believe what this other person is doing. I mean, it is shocking. Are they an actor? I mean, are they putting me on? <laughs> but when we see the situation from their eyes, then we can have empathy. But more importantly, we can also see what it is that they are needing you have your ideas like, oh, here's what I need. Here's how I want this to play out. But if you can figure out what the other person needs from this, you're already getting pretty close to resolution. And one thing people need in a conflict is to be understood. And there's a verbal judo technique called the sword of insertion that allows you to interrupt anyone and not interrupt rudely, but just to interject. And 
politely say or ask, and, and it is the rare person who will push against this, the sword of insertion. Let me be sure I heard what you said. This is one of my favorite parts of the entire book. It basically allows you to get your foot into the conversation because a lot of these conversations start off really negatively where they're just ranting at you for a good five, 10 minutes if you allowed it to continue. But this allows you to interrupt in such a way that is so well-intended that it can't be misinterpreted as anything other than trying to get to a place of understanding. And if you do this improperly, if you interrupt the way that I, I used to interrupt and just sort of try to, but, 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 wait, 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 you know, <laughs> you know the, those times where you just stammer in and just trample all over what they were saying, it, it stops the conversation and it starts an argument. And once you've used that sword of insertion, l- let me be sure I heard what you said. And the tone is obviously going to depend on the moment. Then you can paraphrase. And this not only validates what they're saying or thinking, it helps them think about what they're thinking. Kind of a mouthful there. And they might not even have a clear idea what's going on in their mind. It might just be this jumble of emotion coming out as as words. But when you paraphrase it, make sure that you are on the same page. It's actually encouraging metacognition on the part of the, the agitated person, which is just amazing. You can say there, uh, there's a sort of insertion. Yeah, I'd like to encourage some metacognition on your part. <laughs> yeah. Paraphrasing is so powerful by, by following up. You know, I get the impression that you're feeling angry because of your wait time. Is that true? And, and by just taking a, a stab at whatever it is that your best read is, it allows for correction. Because if say, no, 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 I'm, I'm not mad about that. I'm actually feeling this other emotion because of this other reason. It forces them to more clearly articulate what's going wrong. We've been talking about these techniques or these tactics, and it's it's almost like this gamesmanship. These are techniques for conflict resolution. They I don't know, are they like mental hacks or cognitive reframing on how you're approaching something? But the most important technique in all of this, rather than doing is listening and you think, oh yeah, that's, well, that's, that's so trite. But when you read or listen to people who teach high level negotiation tactics and you think, oh yeah, okay, I'm going to have these beautiful turns of phrase and, you know, I'm going to have a strategy to position myself to win this negotiation, (laughs) you know, all of that. I mean, those things are actually important, but they're a way distant second to what is consistently recommended as the most important tool And that is listening. And that is in conflict resolution. That is in negotiating. This is active listening. And that's really key that that you're actively listening and not just passively taking down the, the word for word transcript that they're saying. We often mistake that communication is the responsibility of only the sender. When really the listener is really um, a key part of this. And so by being open, being ready to listen, I find body positioning almost puts me in active listening mode where you sort of lean in to where the the patient is. I find it really difficult to participate in some of these difficult conversations from a standing position, you know, towering over the patient that's sitting in a bed when you should be sitting on a stool and then really actively engaging with the patient, you know, calling back to them rephrasing what they said, making sure that you're paraphrasing them correctly to allow them to correct you for the many, many times that you will have heard the wrong thing. Well, now we've got some verbal judo techniques laid out, and I want to bring back our nurse from the beginning of the show, Jose Pacheco, the drunk whisperer, with 
uh, about an eight minute discussion that he and I had on how he manages belligerent, agitated, intoxicated patients. And at the end, we will dissect some of his verbal judo techniques and then wrap it up. And he starts out with what is he physically doing as he enters the room? First of all, eye level. Not above them. No, not not above. Not not even below. Because you need to show that, hey, I'm here to help. I'm not here for you to abuse. So there needs to be a, a certain type of body language. And every time I go in, let the patient see what can come. Let him see the 10 security guards. Let him see the intensity that's about to invade his personal space. You have to approach it with compassion, humility. When you approach this person, you you have to understand that they are sick. You know, this is somebody who has a history, who, who's got more emotional baggage than you and I could ever imagine. And one of my biggest fallbacks on mentally is to say, man, I am so glad I'm not in your shoes, but what can I do right now to help you? And I try to come in humble. I try to come in eye level. I try to come with a a vibe of where they're at. The way I enter the room is is very, hey. Let's stop there. Yeah. What is it that you say? Let's say you are actually walking into the room and you're getting on eye level. So if somebody's down on the stretcher, you're going to kind of, you're going to bring your body down a little bit. If somebody's standing up, you're going to be standing up on them. So what is it you say? What's the tone that you use? I go on what their tone is. If they're angry, I bring the volume down to where they almost have to bring that volume down as well. You know, because they're completely surprised that I'm walking into the room in the fashion that I do. Mind you, outside the room, there's 30 people all gloved up. Half of them are security guards. Some have drugs in hand and they're getting ready to pounce. There's not an exact recipe. But I'd say it's not actually different because like seeing you do this many, many times, it feels the same. When I'm there, it feels the same. Right. But my, if, if you look at me, my body, the way my body is talking to them is different every time. And I try to adjust my tone to them. So when they're yelling, I try to talk real low and come real close. Let me get your tone. All right. You're walking in the room. I'm drunk and agitated. F*** all you. F***ing. I'm going to kick your ass. Bro. Hey, what can I do to help you right now? You can get the f*** out and go f*** yourself. That's exactly what I want to do. But let me tell you, man, that if I leave, what's behind me is what you're going to have to deal with. So give me a moment to try to work with you and get at least your basic needs met. Are you hungry? Let me pause you there for a second. All right, I'm watching you do this, and this is exactly how it goes, and it doesn't completely translate to audio. So you're looking at me. You're actually never looking away. Right. You're never looking at. You're never looking to the left. You're looking to the right. Your eye contact is with me. Your body language is forward. So you're leaning forward a little bit, and you're using your hands, like you're using hand gestures, and always open. Yeah, your palms are up. And your palms are open. You know, you'll bring your hands back into your body. And when you want to emphasize a point, you'll push your arms forward, almost like you're holding up a tray. And your hands were kind of moving in this circular, circular movement. You're kind of identifying with them saying, hey, here's the situation. I'm speaking to you with respect, not you will get down. There's two ways to do this. One, my way, two, my way. It's just, hey, I, I respect what's going on. You're having a hard time. What do you need? Is that something that you're going to do each time, offer up 
what is it that you are needing right now? Bringing something to the table as an offering. I'm going to respond then. So you say, what can I get you? And I'm going to say, get me the f- out of here. I want to do that. Everybody wants to help you so you can do that. Then let me go. But you know what? If we let you go right now, you would put us liable and you would not be safe. Can you, we at least agree on that? Now I'm watching you, like as things have escalated, you're still leaning forward and your hands are palm down and it's like you're kind of, you're, you're bringing the energy down. And I see, and as I'm talking, as I'm escalating, you are getting calmer. And keeping eye contact is huge because a lot of people will feel completely uncomfortable and disarmed when you do direct eye contact. You look at a lot of these uh, people that study body gestures and they say, if you look to the left or you look to the right, look down, up, a lot of people will take that as a sign of mistrust. One, you don't wanna make the person that you're trying to bring in feel that. And two, the one thing you don't want to do is take your eye off the prize, you know, and so, that prize could punch you yeah, in the face. That, yeah. You know, and then when you begin to feel the de-escalation, and you, you can talk them down, the less of a negative energy there is in the room, the closer I get to the person. It comes down to a certain point where I'm literally holding them. And that was, that was going to be my next question is what's your distance? What's your starting distance when you walk in? Are you, are you, are you I'm close? always at the door. So you're not in the beginning, you're not close enough that they no. can strike you. You, no, no, always, no. you always have an exit path. I'm always at the door, palms out, showing them, Hey, can I come in right at the beginning? They will cuss at you. They're angry. The, this is a caged animal, unfortunately, to, to put it in those terms. They're cornered. They're uncomfortable. They're cold. They're out of control. I've never met anybody who doesn't like to be in control of any situation. And not only are they out of control, but they're intoxicated. And nobody wants that. You know, you get into these situations in the beginning of the night because you think to yourself, man, I'm going to go out and have a good time. But you never, ever, ever imagine yourself in a cold, bright, white room with a cot that looks like something out of a horror movie with 30 people ready to pounce on you. And so I believe that coming in in a very kind, genuine state, but always cautious. You never want to put yourself in a bad spot. Always walk in every situation critically thinking. And and this takes years to, to get used to. And so most of the situations... You know, we will de-escalate somebody to the point where they will take meds, PO. It never fails. You offer somebody who's intoxicated a burger with a side of bacon, bro, bro. I, I try to bring a sense of um, level playing field. I'm not better than you. You're not better than me. Most of the time, this is people's worst day ever. So... Coming in in a very humble, kind approach helps. What's your phrase when it's a female? You say bro for the guys. What do you say for uh, the ladies? Uh, with, with the ladies, I, I, I genuinely come in if they're older. You say young lady, young lady. you call them? Uh, yeah, hello, young lady. I'm sorry you're in this situation. 
I try to uh, approach the situation with a sense of authority, but kindness at the same time, almost like the way I would talk to my own kids. You know, it's like, dude, I'm here because I love you, but I'm also here to take care of business. So Jose walks in the room and, you know, it might just sound like, oh, here's how someone who's really nice would do this situation. But he is organized down to the micro level. He walks into the room, you know, he says hello. He has his eye contact, his body language. He's always got an exit. And if any point things fall apart and they escalate to a potentially violent or threatening level, the security team and the nurse with the chemical takedown meds are going to enter and it's DEFCON 2 or DEFCON 1 right away. And I love that that safety-oriented approach combined with a deep respect for the patient and their space. We, we fall into the trap of thinking that that, that psych room, you know, we, we have A1 at the shop that I work at, but whatever that psych room is that doesn't have a lot of extra stuff to throw that's just barren with, with this little cot, as soon as you put someone in that space, it kind of becomes theirs. That, that mentality of that's my room and this is my house and it's my way or my way. That, that really starts from the idea that that space that they're in is physically yours, that you as the doctor owns that space. Once you put them there, that's their room. This is their place to hang out. And Jose's approach of making sure it was okay to enter and being respectful from the beginning, it demonstrates that empathy before you even walk in. He doesn't even have to salvage an initial conversation. He's already showing the patient how much he cares. And having a safety first approach, I think it's really critical here because we're talking about these techniques to de-escalate. But if you're in a situation that needs to de-escalate, you've always got to keep in the back of your mind that it could escalate. <laughs> yeah. And we've mentioned that a little bit throughout this, but always have an exit plan because this isn't like, oh yeah, you know, this is going to work on everybody. Sometimes it won't. And protecting yourself, protecting your staff or others Thinking about that, having that organized in advance is, might even be the most important thing. Going back to that metaphor of it being a procedure, verbalizing the plan of what's going to happen if your intubation goes pear-shaped just makes you so much more comfortable. If things don't go well, I already know what plan B, C, D, and E are. And it's this irony of if you're underprepared for what will happen later on, you can't be comfortable enough in your own skin to allow it to happen. By Jose knowing exactly what's going to happen, and having you know plan B, C, and D if this agitation increases, it allows him to be fully present and calm because that's not part of his brain that's having to constantly chug in the background of, oh, I don't really have a plan if this guy gets angrier. Feeding off of that, I think that him having that plan start to finish, I mean, he's just actually just a very nice person, but having that plan gives him calmness and, yeah. the, and the ability to say, hey, I've got this. I've seen him do this many times. And what he says is great, right? His words are great. Like you listen to him. I mean, editing this audio thing and, oh yeah, I'm just kind of kind of relaxed, like a spa day with Jose in my ears. <laughs> I can feel his tone of soothing, but I'll tell you his body language and his eye contact when he was saying this to me, we were in the studio doing this. It's really open. And I felt super comfortable as he was walking through. It's like, oh, I could see that the person on the receiving end of this would say, oh, th this guy is giving me a safe place. Those nonverbal cues are the majority of our communication. So in the book, Verbal Judo, they, they mention that content is only 10%, voice is 35%, and the other nonverbals are 55% for effective communication. 
I bet Jose could go in there like reading a sugar cookie recipe and someone would probably calm down because like this guy is saying something really weird about mixing eggs together to make a, a batter, but he seems so calm. I think I'm going to get calm as well. <laughs> you know, it's, it's kind of an extreme example of it, but, but tone is so key. And when you see his face when he's doing this, I mean, I know we, we played the audio, but I'm describing all these things that you couldn't see in the audio. But when you see his face, it's never wavering. He's not frowning. Maybe there's a little smile, but his face is actually pretty impassive. It's not falsely saccharine of, hey, we're going to go play whack-a-mole down at the county fair. Maybe get some sugar cookies and have a grand old time. It's just, hey, I'm here to help you. As weird as it sounds, you can actually practice your empathy face in a mirror. And, and I promise you the first time you do this, you're going to think, oh, okay, I'm nuts. I've been listening to Dan way too long. I'm staring at my face in a mirror and actually looking to see what I look like. But it's amazing if, if you actually make the face itself, it actually helps pull you into that role of, of being empathetic. If I'm thinking inside, oh my gosh, how do I get out of this room? Oh yeah. They can tell. And when yeah. people are in the estate, they, they know, they say, you don't care. You just want to get out of here. I'm thinking, wow, are they psychic? You're t and that, I guess that's that nonverbal cue or your body language. You know, If you could do it over the phone, you could totally fake it, right? That's 90% 90, <laughs> yeah. 90 is going to be your voice there. But that body language and that face, I, I had never thought of practicing that in the mirror. You know, it's hard enough to practice a lecture out loud in a room by yourself, practicing, oh, yeah. your, practicing your impartial face in a mirror. Well, this is almost like acting class. You're assuming the role. And, and the weird thing is a lot of psychologists actually talk about your body language actually causing you to feel the way that it's forcing you. The, the old experiments of holding a pencil between your teeth in a certain way that either forces you to smile or forces you to frown actually impacts your emotion. It's sort of amazing that your body language, if you're there open and receptive the, the way that Jose was modeling, you actually become open and receptive. And if you square your shoulders and get like really upset with someone and, and kind of take a more aggressive stance with someone, you can actually feel yourself getting more aggressive. And one thing with this, you were saying like, oh, here's all these steps. And, you know, we'll have in the show notes, some of the, the highlights and the high points, but it takes practice. You know, it's not just, oh, I'm going to listen to this podcast and now I'm going to be a verbal judo black belt. <laughs> it, that's <laughs> right. not the case. All right, Dan McCullum, thank you so much. This is going to wrap up Stimulus Episode 1, Verbal Judo. Listeners, stacked right next after this. Maybe you're on a road trip or you're binging this. We've got how to pregame like a pro, where as it turns out, you'll also hear Dan McCullum on how pregames <laughs> for ship. You got, it's, a, you know, there's like, I don't know, 10 different people in there giving their pregaming techniques. And it turns out you're, you're on Stimulus Episode 1 and 2, my man. It's an honor, Rob. <laughs> All right, buddy. Talk to you soon. Uh, thanks again. <laughs>